Flag Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Italiano, here with my usual co-hosts, Tom and Ross. And today we're here with our special guest, Shane Adams of Essie Knives and Randall's Adventure Training. What's going on, Shane? Oh, everything. I can't stop it. <laughs> Tom, how's it going, man? Just grumpy and making knives, trying to Great. make money. So nothing changes week to week. That's awesome. Ross, no. how's it going in your world? I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm the anti-nuge. All yeah. right. Awesome. Yeah, you really seem it. Awesome. All right. So we're going to uh, format's going to be a little different today. We're going to go right into the topic and uh, we're going to let Shane introduce himself and tell us a little bit about himself and what he's doing. Well, uh, I am Shane Adams, uh, marketing director, I guess is my official title for SE. Uh, I kind of added the slash utility player some years ago because I tend to catch a lot of the things that the other folks don't necessarily want to do. So, um, whether that's um, on the Reynolds Adventure Training side or the SE side or even within our uh, our SAR, our nonprofit SAR team, RATSAR, that's RATSAR.org. Um, I'm just kind of a jack of all trades. That's a product of my, my upbringing and my background, pretty diverse uh, experience as far as what I've done even within my occupation. Um, from a school teacher to a, well, actually from a college dropout to a school teacher uh, to a bike shop owner, um, just a lot of different experiences, a lot of varied interests. So that's just kind of how I've grown up. That's awesome. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I know I, I myself have been kind of all over the board when it came to uh, my professions and stuff like that. And, you know, I really do think everything that you do adds, adds a lot of value to what you, what you end up doing in the long run, because you get experience doing things that you don't necessarily get in, in the industry that you that you end up in and it helps you, you know, in the long run. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I hadn't had a business class since the seventh grade and then I wound up being a business owner. And then <laughs> I've taught like a lot of different, I have like a lot of, I, I picked up photography in the late eighties and then did a little video production stuff and actually taught it for a bit and had some medical stuff was an EMT for a while and a hemodialysis nurse and, and then spent a lot of time doing, um, kind of endurance events um, in the outdoors that involve navigation, adventure racing, that kind of stuff. My wife and I talk about it pretty regularly is that all that stuff has kind of lived in different parts of my life. And this job at Essie is, is really something that has brought all those experiences together in one place that I tend to draw from. That's awesome. How long have you been with Essie now? Uh February 1st of 2017, so a little over six years now. Nice. Um, and But I was trading with them as a customer even before I came on staff. So I was kind of okay. in the mix before I, before I came on staff. Okay. And I know you, you mentioned that you did some, some EMS work. I know, uh, Nuge, you did EMS for quite some time, right? Yeah, EMS before the police officer job. So kind of just transitioned from being a volunteer into getting paid for the same thing, which is kind of right. cool. Right. But now I took my degree in training in the police academy just to go work in my garage at my house. Yeah, funny how that works, isn't it? (laughs) It's crazy, right? But no, it's it's the same thing like you were saying, Nick, and Shane was saying, like it all combines together into what I'm doing now because now I take a lot of the experiences that I had and now put them into the models that I'm putting out because I actually have like, you know, I guess you can call it dirt time with the law enforcement side because, like, I just designed a new, like, field use knife that it's like, no, this is what I would have wanted to use. You know, this is what I would have used out there because I know it's not it's not just for crazy tactical knife fighting. It's for cutting a dude's shirt off so you could do CPR on him 
or right. it's, you know, getting a deer out of the damn soccer net for the 80th time. Like it's, <laughs> it's stuff like that. Or, you know, it's not really for the crazy elusive knife fighting that you think you're going to be into. But, you know, you try to use all your experiences to help what you're doing now. Oh, yeah. We're the sum total of our experiences. And, and uh, it's it's pretty cool to be in a place where you can start to bring that uh, those experiences together in, in one location. Because normally, like I say, they're kind of compartmentalized until you find that spot where it's like, oh, OK, I, I'm, I'm going back to some of the stuff I learned a long time ago and putting that into rotation on, on a daily or near daily basis. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny how all that works out. And I know, like, Ross, you, you spent some time – I mean, I know you work in IT, but I know you spent some time working in the financial field, and then you ended up doing IT in the firearms industry, which is uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, IT is, a, is an interesting one because you can work in any industry. So I've worked for a nuclear engineering firm. I've worked for an accounting firm. I've worked in financial services, and now I'm working, you know, yeah, in the firearms industry, and you get it some commonality, but also you can imagine, uh, you know, financial services in Greenwich, Connecticut versus, uh, working for the firearms industry is quite, quite different. Yeah. <laughs> a lot more well. fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. More it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's always good. I think when you can bring that sum total of your experience together, you know, and like anybody who's listened to this before knows, like I worked in the financial industry for a very, very long time until I just had enough of corporate life and the outdoors was always my passion and that's why i kind of landed where i am now but you know that that marketing experience and that sales experience and the uh you know running a business experience really helps make everything kind of flow together so absolutely you also get uh exposed to all different sorts of people which helps with whatever you end up doing because again you know i'm thinking back to my time in uh and finance and you know, people would get nervous when they, they saw that I had like a, I don't know, I had a knife sticker on, on my car or, or what's that bag in the back of your car? And I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's my go bag. Well, why do you have that? And you know, I, I had, I had people telling me, well, don't, doesn't that just make you a target? I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if everything goes wrong and, and you have, and you're prepared and you have all these supplies and you're, that just makes you a target. They're going to take that from you. And you know, now I work with people that, you know, go shooting on their lunch break and, it's it's interesting. People yeah. are interesting. Well, I, I would I would say that that you know part of any business and the, probably the most important part of any business is managing people and managing your interactions with people. And that's that's not something that that a lot of people are just naturally good at. You kind of have to learn. And to your point, like being exposed to different people really gives you a good uh, skill set into that you know people management aspect of things. I guess sometimes you got to learn how to take a breath. Yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. I just yeah. had a package that I just got notified getting shipped to me now and with my favorite people of FedEx. And for some reason, it's going from New Jersey to an address in New Jersey, and they decided to take a pit stop in Tennessee. And it's like, <laughs> why? Why makes sense. You just like look at that email and just go, okay, I don't think this is being delivered tomorrow anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, but what can you do other than scream at them? It sounds like they subcontracted that package to uh, the Postal Service. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. But Shana, I bet you had to deal with this all the time with Essie because you guys move a whole lot more than Knives by Nuge does. Uh, I, that's another one of my many jobs is I get to handle all the technical questions, all the warranty stuff, and all the uh, people that are displeased. Um, fortunately, it's not something that's a uh, – a big mental draw or mental strain. Uh, for the most part, people are really cool 
are really awesome. Occasionally you get that person. Um, you deal with them accordingly. And at some point, you know, you have to decide that we're not fit to do business together. And, and we just invite them to go their own way. And, uh, or if we screw up, we try to own it too. So I think a big part of it is just being cordial, being kind within reason. Uh, and as long as everyone has a, you know, at least a desire to work through the problem and, and to do the right thing, then it, it can normally be hashed out. Well, I love your warranty program. I think it's hilarious that you have them all up at Blade Show when I saw them at your booth. Yeah. All the uh, return knives, and it's just like snapped in half, probably uses a pry bar. Always, like, yeah. Yeah, even though they said they were just cutting a piece of cheese, yet somehow the 1095 knife snapped in half. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. That's, that's what was going on with this thing. Yeah, well, in the in the cycling industry, we had these things called the JRA stories, and that was I was just riding along JRA. <laughs> I was just riding along, and my bicycle exploded. And he was like, "Well, that's not how it works." But yeah. so we have some JRA stories in the biking or in the in the in the knife industry. But for the most part, and it may come as a shock, um, people that are warranting a knife that they've broken are normally apologetic and appreciative, uh, and they. Um, they have a uh, you know some type of respect and appreciation for it. Uh, the ones where we have issues, you know, there are three things we don't cover: loss, theft, or rust. And and whenever we don't cover, you know, go figure. Who knew that a, a carbon steel knife would rust? But evidently, there's people out there that don't. And and at times, those people get really upset. Um, I can't change the properties of metallurgy and steel and kind of that's, that's just how it works. Um, and then what I, our personal favorites are the long dissertations where they know that we don't cover <laughs> lost knives or stolen knife, but they're given this, this novella of how much they love our product. And, and that's great. And I appreciate it, but we're still not going to cover your lost or stolen knife. I'm, we just can't do that. Uh, and we're not going to make an exception for you whenever I haven't done it for the other hundred people that have tried before you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that there is a good deal of lost dives out there because people go out to the wilderness and they end up in rivers or something like that. So, uh, yeah, it's such is the way. But, um, you know, I heard somebody else's your... knife to find now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And if it's in a river, it'll probably be pretty rusty. But yeah, um, and, they'll, and they'll try to warranty. The guy that finds is going to try to warranty. <laughs> Dick, I swear I just lost a sheath. Do you think you could help me out with this? Uh, yeah. It's like, no, dude, that's not how this works. Um, something I heard in one of one of your podcasts, um, something that I found interesting with with the knives is that you guys use some of your uh, your warranty returns as uh, knives and courses. Uh, so, well, uh, yes and no. Um, that's something that's kind of new. Um, I collect all of our um, warranty knives, so they get sent to me, and then I also bought a grinder. So, what's a guy going to do? Right. Uh, I'm going to learn to do a little work on the grinder and then put some of those knives. Uh, they'll never see the light of day as far as we're never going to resell them or anything like that. But if some people want to try a different blade or get a feel for it, then that will happen sometimes. The most, I guess, the highest profile knives that we use were the the two broken knives that um, Jason Sawyer and I used in our uh field survival class our hardest class is called field survival and uh, i went through it i went through it initially as a student uh before i was on staff and then uh for whatever reason got talked into uh going through it again with jason sawyer uh, he's got some good videos up on that on his uh on three survival or survival dispatch but we took two broken knives 
actually we took five or six broken knives and let the interweb vote on which knives we would use during those classes. And then we kind of tooled those knives back up and put an edge on them and got them in working order and, and used them again. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I love I love it. And I, I listened to that podcast where you guys were talking about that one. And I, I really enjoyed that podcast because just the just the whole thinking on your feet thing and and making the tools that you have available work is is so valuable when we talk about anything that comes to, you know, wilderness survival, outdoor survival or anything like that. You know, the uh, the best tools you have are the one that you have on you. Right. Yeah, well, and and we talked about how to approach this in a couple of different ways, and this whole process was born out of a discussion uh, that revolves around um, the cesspool that is YouTube reviews and that kind of stuff. Um, You know, a lot of people do a lot of destruction tests, and they do a lot of, I'm being honest, they do a lot of dumb stuff with knives. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, Tom. Yeah. Uh, where you see people use knives well outside their intended design focus or purpose. Um, but what I never see um, is someone that takes a knife to destruction and then uses it afterwards. Because if it were really a survival scenario, a couple of things are going to happen. Number one, I'm going to treat that knife as a tool, but also as a resource. And I'm going to manage that resource and protect it as much as I can. If a situation arises that I have to use that tool that's well outside of its design focus and I break it, I'm not going to discard it. It's still a tool for me. I still need to have the ability and the skill uh, and the presence of mind to use it as best I can. Uh, So that was kind of our... That was kind of our uh, focus on this, and and Jason and I discussed, you know, our approach to this, and we were either a going to drive over to Alabama from where I live in North Georgia, we were going to stop at a couple gas stations and buy a gas station knife and use that in the class, or we had this other idea of taking a knife that's already broken, and um, and then repurposing it into a useful tool. Uh, and then using those. And the knife he used was a broken 6HM that had about an inch and a half of blade left. And the way it was broken, it already had kind of a natural chisel point, like it was broken perpendicular to the blade. So we just ground a chisel point on the front of it. So you had about an inch and a half of your primary blade and then about an inch and a half of a chisel point. And then uh, my blade was a broken Azula 2 that had, uh, we call it the Azula 1.25 because it <laughs> had an inch and a quarter of, uh, of actual working blade. I put a false edge on it, um, like a clip point, so I could strike a ferro rod with it. And then we called the, uh, the 6HM that Jason used the, uh, the bush chisel. And uh, they both worked great. We didn't really have a need for a larger knife. Uh, with both of us having, you know, less than an inch, inch and a half of, of cutting surface. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that's, that brings up a good point. You know, we've talked about this before. We talk about this a lot. But I think the, the general progression that people go through when they start buying knives is they start with these giant knives. And then they work their way down to, you know, a smaller, more manageable blade size. You know, I think, I think, I mean, between me and Ross, I think, you know, the biggest knives we have in our collection are probably four inches. And the stuff that I use on a daily basis is probably between, you know, 2.75 to three and a half inches um 
just because it's, it's practical and you could do a lot with a small knife and i don't think people realize that you know everybody they go for like the big you know six inch chopping monster knife which definitely serves its purpose but for most tasks i think that you could definitely get away with a small knife most of my knife scars are from big long knives where the tip got away from me because there's so much blade to manage and you know you put it down or you or you're you're carving something that and that tip is hanging out six inches away from the piece of wood and i i got a little uh a little stab uh, scars to, to prove it. Um, yeah, I love I, I love a smaller knife. You guys did that um, that hashtag challenge, the the comfort zone one. Remember yes. that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, just what you were talking about, Shane, just reminded me of that because I did that and I used uh, an Optimal number eight and the cheapest throwaway Chinese ferro rod I could find, and um, it was interesting because like like you're saying, you know, once it fails, can you still use it? And it failed very quickly. Because I was using it, you know, I broke down a, a 20 foot section of uh, sugar maple just to see if I could. And, you know, the lock failed, but I found if I jammed it over really hard, it would kind of stay in place and I would choke up on the handle and I was bleeding all over it, but it got the job done. And like to your point, you know, if that's what you have, I still managed to break down a 20 foot section of, uh, of you know, pretty, pretty hard uh, sugar maple and make a fire and, and do everything else. I wouldn't want to do it again, but... Uh, but yeah, you can make do with a with not the most ideal tool and still get through it. Yeah, that was that was a fun challenge. I enjoyed that one. I carried a uh, a little a little Swiss Army knife for like a week and a half, and I it, it did the job. But I was not happy. <laughs> Which to me is a luxury. I would have loved that Swiss Army knife. Yeah, yeah for me personally, and, and even for us as a company, uh, everybody knows that that our whole industry is gear focused, gear centric. It's all about the gear, the latest and greatest, whatever the latest still is, whatever. I mean, it's, I mean, we're chasing fads. We're chasing what's popular. But in our opinion, as a company and even me personally, is, you know, the, the biggest, the most gear you need is what's between your ears. And you have to be able to know what the limitations are of the tool that you're working with. And and use it to the best performance that you can get out of it, but be mindful of its limitations. And then you retain that resource; it doesn't go away. Uh, you speak about the large knives. Uh, you know our SE five and SE six, and our lar- the hungless. It's kind of like the gateway drug. That's the opening that we see a lot of people come to us with is through the large knives. And you know after we get get repeat customers in some of our classes. As the skill level goes up, the size of the knife and the thickness goes down. And, and you see most people, I mean, my most carried knife is this little CR 2.5. Um, and if I'm being truthful, I rarely need more than about that much blade. Um, it just, you know, we're opening packages, we're opening boxes, we're, we're you know, cutting something rope twine whatever that we need and we rarely need you know a six inch blade uh they're cool to look at but i don't want to tote one around and uh and i don't want to have to use one for fine delicate purposes or that little knife i just showed you accounts for 99 percent of the knife task probably 99.9 percent of the knife task i'd ever need a knife for yeah. But down at like the jungle training that you guys do though, like I feel like there's a lot of like bolos and machetes and stuff like that that the natives are using. I know Ruben just 100%. dropped off two for yeah. me to resharpen. And I'm like, this thing is huge. But like he was telling me, he's like, they use this for everything. 
Yeah, that's their that's what they cut their bread with, what they put uh you know, what they clean their fish with, what they clean their game animal with, what they butcher stuff with, what they clear the jungle with. The jungle's a little different. You will you will see um some larger knives down there because you need that reach. And a lot of times those guys aren't using it. They're not hack you know, that's kind of the the white man's way of getting through the jungle is just to hack yourself silly. Those guys are using it just almost like a walking stick where they're just moving stuff out of the way to navigate through the jungle. Their smaller knives are often uh, made of tips and other parts of, of machetes that have broken off and, and repurposed, you know, so every, like you want to know what, know, uh, how to use a hunglist, see how the, or, or, or a machete, see how the indigenous folks use it. And, uh, man, nothing goes to waste. If you break a knife in half, now you just have two knives, you know? Right. And you mentioned the, the stock size too, because I think that's another thing, right? So people go for the long knife, but they also, they go for such a thick Thick. blade and then you really can't do much with it at all. I mean, I know over the years I've just gravitated towards smaller and definitely thinner, you know, so give me a steel that'll support a really thin stock and you've got such a better blade. Uh, And same thing on, on those, um, you know, the more indigenous, uh, machetes and whatnot. So Tom, I don't know the one that the Ruben gave you, but the ones I see, like the stock is not, it's not giant, chunky, huge, thick stock. No, this was pretty much a leaf spring that was just hammered down and then a very rough bevel put on it. But it's not, I wouldn't say it's over eighth inch. I mean, no. I feel like people want like these, even when I made my chopper, like people are like, oh, well, why aren't you using quarter inch? I'm like, no, five thirty second is more than enough. This thing's still supposed to cut, you know? Yeah. You, you don't need to be hitting it with just the side of a leaf spring. You want this thing to still be a cutting tool. Yeah, even some small knives now I see they're they're sharpened bricks. Yeah, you know, Tom, you had an experience with one recently, and I won't name names, but I mean, yeah, t- tiny little knives, and I won't say they're useless, but well, we can name ours. The SE five is a quarter inch chunk of steel that's a sharpened pry bar, and, and then when you bring that to a bushcraft class and you start trying to do notches or build a figure four or a tri stick, you quickly begin to realize that. Man, this thing is not so much a knife as it is a, a sharpened wedge. Um, and so I, I think there's two major areas that people don't really understand in the knife industry as consumers. And even even some people that are in the industry is they don't understand cutting efficiency and where it comes from. And they don't understand the relationship of edge retention, brittleness with Rockwell. Uh, everybody talks about the steel and anyone that talks about Pick whatever the super steel it is. Used to, when I first came on staff, it was LMAX, and now you hear about it. You don't ever hear, hear the word LMAX anymore, but now it's MagnaCut. So whatever the super jewelry is, if someone's talking about how this steel is better than this steel, but they're not talking about it, what Rockwell, then I think they're missing a, a very key piece of, uh, of the puzzle because the Rockwell is what matters. You know, the, I mean, the, the steel obviously matters, but the heat treat, where you heat treat it, how you heat treat it, uh, for its intended purpose, uh, has to be part of the conversation. And if it's not, you're missing, it's like a car without the wheels to me. Absolutely. A lot of times it's like, have you even used it either to really know whether this is going to perform that much better than the other one? Cause on the last podcast, Nick and I were talking about, like, I was just using one of my 1095 Scandies and like, I'm just cutting through on the table, not realizing there's a piece of steel underneath what I'm cutting. And I, you know, steel against Scandy is no good. Yeah. But because it was 1095, heat treated to where it was, I could strop and I had to edge back right away. Yeah. Or like I feel like some of these other ones where if you actually 
take it out into the field and you run into something like that. Like Magna Cut at 65 is still going to dull if you run it across steel on the edge. It's mm-hmm. But then good luck field sharpening. Good luck touching it up on a stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's impossible. But I think that comes down to the, you know, the practical use of the knife and, you know, like well, we, we've talked about this in the past as well, but like people buy things because it makes them feel a certain way. But I think most people are not really who are buying knives are not hard using their knives on a daily basis. So something like edge retention is probably really important to them because they want to cut through as many Amazon boxes as possible. Um, and, and they don't know how to sharpen it when it does get dull. That's what I was about to say next. <laughs> that, that, that to me, um, that has become a dark art of sharpening. And I think that's the birthplace of all this super steel craziness is because people could save themselves a lot of money if they quit buying knives and buy sharpening stones and learn how to use them. Um, and, and so that's – we only recently began in the last couple of years, we began to offer a sharpening service because that's what's come, you know, to be expected within the industry. You know, you want us to sharpen your 1095 knife, we'll charge you 22 bucks to do it. Uh, but what I always do is, is I always send people two videos that we've done on knife maintenance and, and then how to build just a small improvised sharpener where you can do it yourself. And I encourage people learn this. This is a skill. This is, this is no different than having a gun and being able to field strip it, service it, clean it, keep it in working order. You, you should be able to do that on a on a on a knife as well, especially when it's you know something that's easy to resharpen and touch up as ten ninety five. Yeah, but I, I think there's a part in play there that's the collector part too, right? So like Nick was yeah. saying, you know, people buy things because it makes them feel a certain way. So, I mean, if we're all honest, we could all stick with one knife probably and just maintain it really well and have it for ever right yeah. but it's yeah. fun to buy more and you know um nick when you said that uh, about buying a knife because it makes you feel a certain way when i was a kid i mean teenager or whatever i remember i go to the library and look at you know whatever the knife they had some sort of knife magazine i don't know if knives illustrator was around back then whatever it was and the uh, companion the bk2 uh becker was in there and i just remember thinking like i need this this thing looks so cool and it's like it's I, I when I go camping with my dad I could I could chop down a tree with this thing I could do and and I never had one and then you know a few years ago someone wanted to trade me a BK2 for something and I said sure and um it's you know I might as well have traded for a, a block of steel. I mean, it had an edge, but I mean, I don't even know how thick that thing is and these giant, you know, plastic handles. And it's like, it was more of a bludgeon, a, a bludgeoning device than a knife. And, uh, but again, I bought it because, you know, that had that whatever that got me excited back when I was 13. Yeah. Well, that's what happens. I mean, I remember when I was, you know, I, I as a kid growing up in the eighties, like all I wanted was, was one of those hollow handle Rambo style survival oh, yeah. knives, you know. I, I bought so many of those. <laughs> yep. And I, I finally got one and I was like, wow, this thing is terrible. <laughs> not, not Wilson's though. No, not wow. Wilson's. Wilson Wilson's those are so damn beautiful cool. knife. Yeah, I, I want cool. I want one of those. Yeah. I still that inner twelve year old. Yeah. Patrick got one of those, one of Sam's knives at Blade Show, and I have been uh, you know, I've never really – so I got burned. I got burned just like you guys did on the hollow handle. I, I remember going to Smoky Mountain Knife Works as a, when it was way before it was the big massive thing it is now. Um, saved all my money, bought one of these ridiculous hollow handle with it had the kit in it. You use the little saw. It breaks after the first time you use it. The first 
the first limb I chopped was a green limb that was thinner than my pinky and it put a wave in the blade, you know, just like out of the first time out of the sheath, first use. I'm like, oh, God. So uh, I still have it, oddly enough. Um, and I think the broken saw is still in the handle, but uh, fish hooks are unused and all the other stuff. But it's, yeah, I looked at that not too long ago. It was pretty funny. I was on vacation with my family when I was like 12 or 13 in, in Ohio. And I went to some, you know, general store in the middle of nowhere and they had a pile of hollow handle, you know, Rambo nice. And I begged my dad and he gave in same thing. I took it back to the house where we were staying and I, I chopped it against a tree and the blade popped right off the handle. And <laughs> oh, yeah. I was so crushed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the one I had, I don't even think it was heat treated, honestly. I, it was just. <laughs> Probably not. That's closer <laughs> to just, what mine was. Yeah. Uh, it just kind of melted when I tried to cut anything with it. The, the edge just went. <laughs> so. uh, it's like trying to cut with a Campbell's soup can yep. <laughs> lid, you know? Probably would have worked better. Yeah, it would have. The lid, the actual can I would have. I myself on that all the damn time. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. a Rambo knife. I feel like you can't even cut yourself with it. Yeah. No, I am. I am very happy with Wilson's though. I have uh, his pack light, so it's his small, um, like that's tech what, that's one. That's what Patrick has. That's a cool knife. Yeah, that is a very cool little knife, um, and it, it's performed very, very well. And uh, you know, I, I talked to him at length about it um, on the phone one day, and he, the the extent that he tested these things was was crazy to the point where he's like yeah i put it in the fire for an hour to see if the blade moved when i took it out i was like well that's hopefully no one's leaving their knife in a fire but you know what that's 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 good man i i that that attention to detail it means a lot when you're when you're testing a knife so that's that's awesome i warranted an se3 or an se4 that had the guy had lost his knife and found it the next day on in the fire uh, where it had fallen out into the fire, and we warranted that uh, literally in the last month and a half or so. That's awesome. That's I've, that's the first for me. I've never heard that before, but I guess I could see it happening. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, we talked a lot about knives, but um, I wanted to, I did want to talk a, lo- a little bit about um, skills and uh, or maybe things that you should and shouldn't do if you find yourself in a search and rescue scenario. Now, hopefully nobody finds themselves in a search and rescue scenario, but I'm sure Shane can attest. It happens a lot more than than people oh, yeah. think it would. So, <laughs> um, so Shane, now you're the expert here. So um, what do you think would be the, the basis of what? not to do if you find yourself in a search and rescue scenario? Uh, that list is pretty long. Um, number <laughs> one, uh, yeah, no, what not to do. I'm, I'm trying to kind of prioritize this is always let somebody know where you're going. You know, the problem with that is people like us who have uh, a bit of skill and, and we're not afraid to just like strike out. Um, I'm the worst. I get on my motorcycle and I just get, I just like, I'm just, where does this go? Where does this go? Where does this go? And I wind up with literally no clue of where I'm at and, and then just working my way back. So I don't call it lost. I just call it misplaced. Uh, I'm, I'm temporarily misplaced. Um, I think a, a big part of, of what not to do is the worst, probably the worst thing you can do is, is, you know, lose your head a little bit, panic. Um, we've seen a lot of, like this cascade effect of bad decisions where any one decision along this cascade of bad decisions wasn't um, catastrophic, but the sum total 
uh, of those decisions ends in catastrophe or often a fatality where uh, you just made this series of bad decisions and you never stopped and really thought about it where these people could have arrested this fall. They could have arrested this situation, stopped it, thought about it a little bit and survived. And instead they acted on impulse or out of fear and it drove them, you know, to an early demise. Um, panic, uh, panic and fear can do, um, can really, really cloud judgment. Um, you know, there's a, there's a program out there for kids. It's called hug a tree, which is you just stop, you just stop, sit, wait, signal, do whatever you can until somebody realizes you're gone and, um, and, um, comes to find you. Um, it's hard to hit a moving target. This is no different than if we're shooting pistols or rifles or anything. Um, it's way easier to hit a stationary target than it is a moving target. So if you are lost and you're constantly moving, it is hard for people to zero in on you. Um, having a plan, having just a little bit of skill and a little bit of equipment can go a long way towards survival. Um, besides the obvious of leaving an itinerary, letting, letting people know where you're going and what time to, to uh, expect you back, one of the best things that you can carry that, that weighs nothing and you can put just about anywhere is a whistle. Uh, people always overlook a whistle and you shout for seven to 10 minutes and your vocal cords are blown. You can, as long as you have air in your lungs, you can blow a whistle all day long. And, um, and it carries farther. It penetrates the, the wilderness or, or the, the canopy better. Uh, it's easier to locate. Uh, we've had people that we're looking for that could hear us whistle and would yell back to us and they could hear us, but we couldn't hear them. So yeah, those are some makes, pretty, pretty important factors. I just wanted to go back to what you were saying before about the, you know, the whole um, series of bad decisions. And, you know, something that I talk about in, in the academy a lot and something that I've always, you know, just been a big proponent of is that really, you know, your mindset is the most important tool that you have to staying alive in a bad situation. You know, not panicking and being able to, to focus on your surroundings and make critical decisions is really, really important. Um, and I know I, I've personally been in a lot of situations where like I've been um, misplaced. I, I've been lost, but I only say I was lost once because I was 12 and I was in Olympic National Park, but um, and search and rescue people did have to come <laughs> come and get me. But, um, you know, other than that, I've been misplaced and I've been in situations where I've had a minor injury or something like that, where it's like, all right, stop, take a deep breath and think, because if I didn't do that and I started to panic, like it just would have went south really, really fast. Yeah. I tell people the time to realize that you need additional training is not when you find yourself in a situation where you now need those skills. So putting yourself voluntarily, checking your dipstick, getting outside your comfort zone, testing yourself, testing your gear, testing your mindset is something that should be part and parcel of who we are. If we're going to get outside and do those things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and it goes to like what you said about testing your gear. Like how many people have you encountered that went out with a brand new pair of hiking boots for the first time on like a 10, 12 mile hike and now their feet are falling off because yeah, they that's assuming they're wearing, Yeah. That's assuming they're wearing boots. We see people yes. in, I mean, oh, yeah. so we were, uh, we see people in Crocs. We see people in flip flops. Oh, we see, I mean, and they're in places, I mean, we were, teaching a class and Patrick and I were teaching a class in Crossville, Tennessee this past weekend. And so we were there to kind of discuss some, some pre-planning of, you know, you get these 
uh, repeat offender areas where these people get lost in the same place every time where they fall off these falls or they do this. And they took us to a place called Ozone Falls. It's 110 vertical feet into a, like a pool. And they get they get bi recoveries and actually have actually had a few people live through the fall. Uh, and we're sitting there and there's literally people dangling their legs over this 110 vertical feet. And there's a child there walking in the creek six feet from a vertical edge. The child's wearing Crocs. The mother's wearing Crocs. Um, neither are what you would call physical specimens or look like they're too fleet of foot, if you follow me. Mm -hmm. uh, slick rocks uh, six feet from the edge of a just a sheer drop and you're just like okay guys i gotta go <laughs> i can't watch this <laughs> um so yeah yeah it, it's it's a lot of people go out for what i call uh, just like gilligan's island a three-hour tour and, and they wind up getting a bonus night in the woods uh so that's an amazing line yeah yeah <laughs> i think i think we've seen a big uptick in that since since like the covid pandemic started because people who were not really outdoors people had nothing else to do with their lives so they started going to the outdoors and man i i can't tell you the, the things that i've seen like we would be like six or seven miles deep on a trail and there'd be like a, a bunch of people with like kids and flip-flops and yeah whatever it is like, no gear no water no yeah nothing. no like no a small backpack that's like meant for like you know your tchotchkes and no water no food no gear i'm like what are you what are you doing like well we talked about this like two episodes ago it's because these people don't have the luxury or they had the luxury of not seeing these things happen to other people or happen to themselves yeah because the more you see it the more you really recognize and be prepared for these kind of things because either you've been there yourself or like shane was saying you've seen the side effects of what happens when you aren't really paying attention or have the right gear can be pretty bad and it's like you know we now know that but a lot of these people going out there for the first time they they're lucky that they don't have those experiences but they still should be you know the, it won't it, it won't happen to me or i'll just call somebody and they don't realize yeah. that they go to pick up their phone and you've got no service and no matter how high you hold it you know uh, it's interesting that you brought up covid because that was one of the topics i wanted to talk about is in our industry um I say this very cautiously, but but the 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 Bible of 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 what we do with search and rescue, generally speaking, is is a, a book or a series of books called Lost Person Behavior, and it's written by a guy named Bob Kester, who has been compiling, basically doing a statistical analysis of of lost person behavior cases for over forty years, and he has thousands of cases, and he basically began by categorizing okay trail runners hikers anglers mountain climbers mountain bikers hunters so what we had was he would categorize these people and then whatever information he could find and it would basically spit out this the statistical analysis of, of, of the commonality that these groups of people share what we've seen during covid is you're right we have seen more people in the woods but what we've also seen is a greater instance of so our call outs used to be way more simple we're going to go look for an overdue hiker okay we got a hunter that that's supposed to be out of the woods he's not out of the woods those are pretty simple pretty straightforward we're looking for this person he's going to be looking for us what we've seen during covid is this explosion 
of mental illness, anxiety, substance intoxication. So now uh, despondent, so suicidal people. So what we're seeing now is not this clear cut in a box. This guy's a hunter who's overdue. He's a fisherman who got lost. Now we're seeing this casserole of categories to where we got a guy who's a known drug user, who's got mental illness, who is despondent. I mean, and, it, and then what you have to start doing is, is creating this soup, if you will, uh, to try to find this person based on these categories. And we, we, we submit all of our cases to Bob Kester, and we have an ongoing conversation with him, is that it's probably going to be another six, eight, ten years before we get an accurate picture of exactly how much COVID uh, and the societal impact it had is going to really affect search and rescue. But we feel like we're in a shift right now. It's a very large shift, a skew uh, that can be directly attributed to some societal changes that, that were really brought on by COVID. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it, I can see how that could be a challenge for you because you these people are completely unpredictable because you don't have any data on what they're doing. And, you know, a lot of these people might not even know that like a search and rescue option could exist you know it's just okay i'm out here in the woods and i'm gone i mean or they don't want to be found exactly well you were saying so like when when a hunter is overdue you assume that hunter is is trying to get out he's trying to get to safety he's sheltering in place whatever and, and assume someone's looking for them and you're looking for that person it's a completely different situation when that person maybe doesn't even want to be found i, I can't imagine how difficult that is yeah, we had a case. Um, we've had a couple of different cases in the past year where people have actively, actively evaded, and in that case, you just you're like, I'm out. I can't. I mean, this person has um, their own agency. They have the ability to say, I don't want to be messed with. I'm going to go do whatever. You know, catch me if you can. And I'm not a fugitive task force, and this person's not a fugitive. There's no warrants on this person. I don't have to go track this guy down. He doesn't want to be found if he's actively evading. He can come home when he wants to, you know. Yeah. And then you also have to take into account um, searcher safety. I mean, like, do I want to put people in the woods with someone who may be experiencing some suicide ideations and who doesn't, who who may not care for themselves, may not care for other people, and 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 doesn't want to be found or or wants to take somebody with them? And um, we just see um, we have to approach. I mean, we've only been doing this thing for really really formally for about five years. And even within those five years, we've seen a massive shift and we have to be way more cognizant of, of the situations that we're sending people in into. Did you see any of that in uh, traditional like law enforcement, uh, Nuge? Uh, yeah. And that's actually one of the most difficult things to deal with is when you have somebody with mental illness and how to approach them. And it's like, I mean, I was always very confident with it because like I, especially the EMS experience helped a lot because you understand what's really going on with people and what's, why there's a dis, there's a disconnect. But most of the time deep down, the person is still there. We're like, when you had somebody who is like manic or not really there, you, you could just gently grab them and like guide them and talk with them. But when you started like giving the commands and going at it, that's when things get aggressive and just defensive because just natural humans like they don't want to be grabbed. They don't want to be yelled at. They don't want to have orders barked at them. And two, it's like 
I don't know, like you never know what's really going to happen. And for search and rescue, I don't know if the guys are going to be necessarily trained the same way as like I would be to like take somebody down, which is why like I had a little more confidence because I'm like, all right, if we're about to start scrapping, I just got my ass kicked by a bunch of guys earlier this week in jujitsu. So like I'm not worried about this one guy where search and rescue, it's a different, different field set, different skill set. And that's not your job either. Like your job is just to find them and hopefully get them out. So I don't know. Yeah, that's you, a weird predicament to put you guys in. Yeah, you open yourself to a lot of liability. Uh, and I mean, you got in some cases. I got a you know a girl that's a hundred and fifteen pound dog handler. You know, yeah. What, you know how's she gonna? So you you don't put you don't put her in a situation a by herself or in a situation where she's not going to have support. Um, but it's been yeah the COVID thing. We've seen a really strong uptick in despondent. Uh, substance intoxication, drug use, um, and then also dementia. Uh, I don't know. Um, we've just seen an explosion of dementia cases, and, and, and those people operate on a whole different wavelength than um, and very outside the norm, very hard to predict. Um, so, yeah, it's been an interesting couple of years for sure. And even if you try to understand them, it's even once you get there, it's like then trying to work with it from there because at the end of the day, you guys are search and rescue, not therapists. Yeah. So it's like it's a different skill set you have. That's what we ran into all the time where it's like you would have a bunch of cops go into a mental illness call. It's like, no, I don't think these are the right guys for the job. You need a social worker here. Like, we'll keep the area safe, but we can't do the rest of this job. Yeah. Let alone even understanding where somebody with dementia is going to even go. Yeah, you have to have the ability to think on your feet, especially, well, in all areas. I mean, one of the one of the, I often work in incident command, and one of my main jobs is is between, you know, ops planning, but also one of the things I like to do is is to be the family liaison. I'm the guy that's liaising with the family, and we're talking and and trying to get as much intelligence as I can. Um, and oftentimes, the people that are closest to the person that's missing are the ones that have the biggest blind spots as to where they might be mentally and physically. Um, so if you've got sister that's taking care of mom and, and she says, yeah, mom's been a little more forgetful. And then brother comes to, you know, visits every month. And he was like, Holy cow. She's I've saw, I've noticed a sharp decline from last month to this month. I saw her three days ago. She wasn't the same person. You know, sister sees it every day. So to her, it's just she doesn't see that gradual decline. Whereas, you know, brother hadn't seen mom in a month and he's kind of shocked at, at the decline that he's noticing. It's just that's just human nature, though. Yeah, well, on you guys, it's learning how to ask the right questions, too, when you're looking for the person yes. to get the background history. Because, like, you know, I'm sure a lot of you guys on the teams already have experiences, fishermen, hunters, hikers. You already know where you would be going. But with somebody with dementia, you're going to have to find out what is going on in their head or their previous life experience. I mean, even Very much it's so. stupid, it's silly. Like we had one guy with dementia who always get out of one of the nursing homes in town. And I got to know him. I knew that he was a drinker. And guess where I'd always find him was behind the liquor store. And I'm like, shocker, you're back here again. But it's like because I knew enough about him from asking the questions and knowing them that I'm like, yeah, of course you're going to be back here. Because it's like the brain just takes him back to a place like that. Absolutely. You know, we were looking for a guy in the Smokies who was from New Jersey, you know, and to all us. A terrible place. You know, all of us guys down here in the (laughs) South think uh, New Jersey's a city boy. Uh, He's got bad dementia. This guy was a a serious hunter and had hunted all over the place. So 
how he acts in the woods at his base level is going to be a different comfort level than someone who who's actually grown up in the city. Um, so he has far more comfort in the woods, even in, in his altered state. He's comfortable in the woods. He may not know where he's at, but he knows he's in the woods and he's fine with it. So he could think he's in back in the woods in New Jersey, but he had a comfort level there that has to be considered when you do your search planning. Yeah. How, how often do you guys get called out? I'm just curious. Like, So in, we've run pretty close to 50 plus calls a year uh, the last couple of years. Um, every year. Our, our area of operation has grown. So RATSAR started, RATSAR.org, that's our website. It's our nonprofit. It, we started really to support uh, the Sipsi Wilderness, which is just north of our base of operations in, there in Alabama. Um, and then every time, but we began to be called out more and more. And, and I use this term very respectfully, uh, and without exaggeration, but we're kind of a special operations unit of, of sorts where we have regional assets that range from Kingsport, Tennessee, to Birmingham, to Nashville, to Knoxville, to south of Atlanta, through North Georgia, and obviously into North Alabama. But we have folks that are trained in confined space cave rescue, technical rope rescue, uh, land search. Uh, we have some swift water guys. Uh, and then we also have a, a pretty solid incident command team where we can show up and on any scene and, and at least find some place. I mean, you know, our motto is, is if you need us to carry water, we'll tote water. We're just there to do the work. You know, we're not too proud to do anything. Um, but we normally get called when things have broken bad. You know, it's day four, day five. So we always come into situations, it seems like, Unless it's back in the Sipsi or Bankhead, which we're normally first called, um, we always come into this situation uh, after the trail's gone cold and they haven't turned something up. And, and so we have to start back at oftentimes ground zero. So outside of the, the mental health issues, like how much do you really see that's just um, basic lack of experience and skill? Uh, when we first started, that was the bulk of our cases. In the last in the last three years, we've seen a precipitous fall off of that. And and uh, actually, the same we probably do it about the same number of lost hiker, lost hunter cases that we were doing. We're just doing way more, you know, comorbidity, substance intoxication, dementia, mental illness type stuff, um, despondent, suicidal stuff, uh, or some homogenization of those way more now that's, so it's that's not like the numbers weird. really went down right yeah. it's just that the others went up yeah and as did our call volume our call volume has gone up quite a bit too more than doubled since we started i mean easily more than doubled uh probably closer to tripled since our first year yeah that's that's pretty wild and you know it's not, it's not really something that i thought about you know there being so much of that that mental health um aspect of it i mean i know like people go to the woods because they want to feel better it makes them feel better but uh I don't know. That's that's kind of crazy. Um, but you know, it's good. It's good to know, and it's good to be aware of of what's going on out there. And I think it's important. You know, even for us, for us lay people. You know, it's like I am. I am uh, first aid. You know, wilderness first aid and wilderness first responder certified. And I had. You know, have had situations where I've had to help people. Not had to help people, but I opted to help people because they mm-hmm. had an injury and they didn't have kit or whatever it is on them. But um. 
you know, I never actually thought about, well, maybe this person is mentally ill before <laughs> approaching okay. it. So that's, that's a very good perspective for me, you know? Well, we've probably bumped into those people. I used to spend a lot of time on the Appalachian Trail um, early in the spring. And that's when all your uh, through hikers are coming through here that are that are northbounders, and you're going to meet some eccentric folks in the woods at times. Um, we don't really need to switch off our powers of observation, our spidey sense when we go in the woods at this point. Uh, I, I still feel ultimately way safer in the woods than I would in any city in the United States. That's yes, just 100%. who I am, but I am not going to let my guard down completely. And furthermore, sometimes, you know, our best course of action is to be a good witness. You know, if I take note of of a situation or a person that I run across in the woods that's kind of off or or doesn't seem right, I'm going to do what I can to imprint that person's face, their mannerisms, their demeanor, where they were into my brain. I can also use my cell phone to help document some of that, you know, uh, in a little bit more of a covert fashion if I wanted to. Um, but just being able to be a good witness and say, yeah, I saw this guy and he didn't seem like he wasn't super talkative. He was very evasive. Um, wouldn't make eye contact, you know, just, just anything that can be a hint to someone who might be looking, looking for this person and going from there. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it amazes me how blissfully unaware a lot of people are out in the woods. I mean, we see people, you know, me and Russ, we go out with our kids a a bunch and we see people all the time with like, you know, headphones on, they're just not paying attention. They're all over the place. They're, they're completely off trail and they, they really don't understand. Like not that, you know, being off trail is necessarily the worst thing that you could do, but if you're not aware of the things that could potentially be off trail, you know, whether it be a cliff or a snake or, you know, something else that could potentially hurt you. It's just, it, it blows my mind how people, People are just kind of so aloof and I I guess I attribute a lot of that to people who just don't spend a lot of time outdoors because they're they're used to being in a town or in a city where you don't really have to worry so much about these kind of hazards but I yeah I mean I, if you grow up in a, a city you're you're seconds away from another human being at almost any moment right so the idea I've talked about this before you know when I go hiking in the Hudson you know I see people six o'clock at night and they're starting their hike in and yeah. they don't have a flashlight and they, again, the lightweight backpack and they have two kids with them. And I, I, I struggle with that. Like, do I say, Hey, not a great, and I've just, I've done it. Hey, you know, I don't know if you've done this hike before, but you're, you're, you're heading into potentially for you six or seven hours and it's going to be dark in one, you know, maybe not the best time. Um, but those people, again, if they're used to having a human being, one, you know, loud yell away at any given time, they don't understand how isolated you you are in the woods, you know, at any given moment. It also doesn't mean that the human being that is there, one, is capable of helping you or two, willing to help you. can't tell you how many calls I've been on with people surrounding the person who's injured and nobody's doing a goddamn thing, whether it's because they weren't willing or weren't capable. So it's like just because you're still around people doesn't really mean shit if they can't help you out or aren't willing to. I bet they're filming it with their phone, though. Yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> Everybody's got to get up on fucking Instagram stories before actually helping. And like, I if it's somebody I know, I have a you know a nice safe term of laugh first, help second. But that's for somebody I know. I'm going to make fun <laughs> of them if they got hurt and then help them out, but not to a stranger. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, it's um, 
I think people have an over-reliance and, and put way too much trust into technology, whether it be yep. GPS or, or um, a phone. Uh, and it lets them down. They go in half cock thinking I have a GPS. Well, that GPS does you no good if you don't know how to use it. No different than a compass or, you know, you could be carrying around the jaws of life, but if you don't know how to do it, you can't, you know, you can't open a, a beer bottle with it. It doesn't matter, you know, if you don't know how to run it. I was going to ask what you think about, you know, you mentioned a whistle, which is, is something I keep in, in all my packs. Um, but like, like the Garmin, you know, the, whatever, the mini in reach, like, something like that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on those sort of devices so i have a garmin uh inreach mini actually i have a garmin gps inreach the gps the 66 the full version with maps and stuff that i use oftentimes on my motorcycle um i think i think it was summer before last uh so the tail of the dragon is is world famous road 316 curves and i think 11 miles there that kind of straddles the border between tennessee and and north carolina and it is essentially a mecca for motorcycle riders. Uh, it's ridden all the time, year round, uh, with motorcycles and with sports cars. They had a guy up there that went, and it's it's. There's obviously no cell phone service. It's in the mountains, um, or no cell phone service in places. They had a guy up there a couple of years ago that that went off the mountain, and there's gouges in the concrete on almost every turn. You can see where people just, you know have what I call root syndrome and that's ran out of talent and, uh, and just pitched it off the mountain. Uh, guy had a, was pretty broken up and ultimately expired, uh, there within almost within a shout of the road. Uh, but you know, a loud pipe save lives except they did in this place because, uh, the guy recorded himself on his phone, basically saying his goodbye to his family and friends and just, you know, died over the course of about 48 hours. Um, one of the things that I keep on me on my person is I have a pretty extensive medical kit in, in my motorcycle pannier, but also on my person, I wear like a Blue Ridge Overland fanny pack that has a tourniquet and some medical supplies for me. I mean, oftentimes you're going to get separated from the bike. And if, you know, I've got an open compound uh, fracture that's dug into the dirt, I'm not going to want to crawl to my bike. So my bike and I are separated, uh, at least at this way, I have something on me where I can I can put on a tourniquet or, or have some bleeding control that I wear on my person all the time. Yeah, and that's definitely an important skill to have. I, I, I believe, you know, a lot of people do carry first aid kits, but they don't have the knowledge behind mm-hmm. using those first aid kits or they buy one of those like you know rei specials that cost 22 bucks and there's really nothing in there of any great use other than maybe something to put a band-aid on and pull a splinter out like developing the skill and taking some formal training when it comes to first aid i think is really important for anyone who goes out to the outdoors but especially if you're going to be you know doing any kind of you know extensive hiking or you know in this case motorcycling or if you're responsible for other people you know yeah absolutely i lead scouts and i i make sure that i you know that i have the equipment that i need to take care of my scouts if necessary and i encourage you know the other leaders in my in my pack to to get that training and make sure they have that training because i'd much rather be able to fix someone than have to tell a parent a really sad story you know yeah, it's and also that, having accessible, like yeah. Shane was saying, like yeah, having, having it on you. And and you know, one thing I I do, uh, I don't know if you guys do this, but I, I use my first aid kits even at home. So you know, I have a first aid kit, and one of my kids gets a splinter. 
I go and I grab that first aid kit and I make sure like, yeah, my tweezers are still there. My flashlight's still there. You know, Neosporin, Band-Aid, whatever it is, even if it's minor stuff, because you'll be surprised sometimes to open up and you're like, oh, I didn't replenish this after the last time I used it or that's not in there or, you, or, you know, or you somebody expired. else. Yeah. Somebody else got into it and didn't put it mm-hmm. back where it goes. Exactly. So and using it frequently yourself yeah. with where everything is in your, you know, cause yeah, you have so to we, act fast. Yes. Like I need to know like, okay, my turn, I know where my tourniquet is or I have, yep. I usually have two, but you know, I know where they are and I can grab them real fast uh, as opposed to like, if you build out a kit and you throw it in your bag and you haven't opened it in a year, now you're fumbling around. Where's this, where's that, you know, that's not going to, do you any good yep yep i had dealt with that all the time on the job where it was just like i eventually organized everybody's jump kits the same because it drove me fucking nuts when i'd be in somebody else's squad car and the kit would be all over the place and i'm like what if this guy was bleeding out right now and i don't know where all the bandages the quick clot or tourniquet is because you're too lazy to organize this thing and, you know, it just, you know, seconds matter in situations like that. And even like having it on you, like I, so many guys would have like tourniquets in their car. And it's like, well, that's very convenient for when you get shot inside the house away from your car. Yeah. Like for super helpful to have your chest seal in the back of the trunk and not in your pocket. Yeah. That's one of the things like even within, you know, we just taught a class, or I, we, Patrick and I taught a class for a for a the, one of the largest Honda dealers uh, in the nation uh, a couple months back. Um, when you think about motorcycles side by side ATVs, most your head injury, neck injury, obviously are pretty high on the list, but it's extremity injuries, and it could be catastrophic extremity injuries. Nobody carries a tourniquet. Nobody carries signaling. Nobody carries a whistle. Nobody carries you know, uh, a pressure dressing or anything that they could use to, you know, to, to pack a junction or something, you know, some type of wound like that. And, and so, but the main thing I would want to be carrying is a tourniquet and almost nobody carries it. My sons and I ride motorcycles together. We all carry tourniquets because doesn't matter what you got in your car. You're not in your car. You're not on your car and the car is not parked right next to you normally. Um, we carry kits that are for us and then we carry a separate kit that's for somebody else. We all wear the same bag with the same stuff in it, uh, mostly. Um, mine has an EpiPen in it. I recently had a my first anaphylactic reaction uh, in my life, so now I'm evidently going to be destined to carry an EpiPen around all the time. Uh, but that's in my kit. Um, I've been stung in the face and in the body numerous times by bees in the past and never had an issue, but now it's an issue because that's what I'm that's what I'm allergic to. Um, yep. But tourniquets or something else, a pulse oximeter, you can buy a pulse oximeter really cheaply off of Amazon now. That gives me O2 sats and a pulse at a just at a quick glance, provided my batteries work, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's yeah, something and I, that people don't understand. I honestly think with tourniquets, the biggest thing that holds people back from actually carrying a tourniquet is the price. And I know that, oh, that sounds ridiculous, but there's people, you know, they're out there, they'll spend three, four, five hundred dollars on a knife, but they don't want to spend thirty five, forty bucks on a high quality tourniquet, which which yeah. blows my mind. But you know, well, it is what it people is. People think you're just gonna make one in the fucking field, and that's not well, yeah, a yeah, realistic yeah. expectation at all to be able to get the same type of pressure that you actually no. need. And consistent pressure too, because you also need it to fucking stay. 
Yeah. You could get it really tight, but you need it to stay there while you're also moving the person. And it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to have this giant three foot long fucking stick with all these bandages that you tied together while you try to now carry the guy out. Yeah, okay. Right. Or and your belt are, with not enough holes in it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. chances are they, they bled out while you were trying to build that tourniquet. So, you know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's better just to have the equipment. And I, I encourage everyone who's listening to this to buy not just one, but multiple tourniquets and take one out and practice with it. And you'll know you're doing it right if it hurts like hell. <laughs> That's, yeah. uh... That's 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 the name of the game. But without the, without the skill to go behind the equipment, it's it's useless. So you know. and we could name that tourniquet. We're all talking about the cat tourniquet. The cat. Yep. I think it's the Cat Seven is the latest version. Uh, the same people that make Sam Splint make a pretty cool tourniquet that we've done some uh, some work with. Um, do not buy those tourniquets off of Amazon. There's too many fakes out there. Yep. Um, Chinook Medical Supply, North American Rescue are the places that you really want to look at. And again, train with it, use it. Um, it's been proven to be uh, life-saving. And the old the old way that we used to look at tourniquets as far as if you leave it on for more than a couple hours, you're going to lose the limb. Uh, that's been debunked largely. Uh, but even still, I'd rather... Uh, I'd rather walk with a life. Yeah, I'd rather walk with a limp than uh, than not be around to to see my kids grow up and and uh, meet my grandkids at some point. Exactly. So exactly. tourniquets and whistles—that's the takeaway today. <laughs> uh, and having some kind of plan. Um, yeah. It, it, like most people have no clue on navigation. You know, and they can have a map and a compass and a cell phone and a GPS. But if you don't know how to use it, uh, you know, it, you don't, I mean, if you don't, you know, that right there can, if we have cell phone service, that right there can give us our current UTM. You go to your compass on your iPhone and, and you can get your active UTM right now. Uh, but you got to know how to do it. And, yep. and, and, um, and even the new, new iPhones, I think the 14 comes with a inReach, uh, SAT compatible, uh, like an in, a Garmin inReach uh, SAT communication uh, capability, and it's free for the first year. You still yep. got to know how to use it. Yeah. And like you mentioned before, tell people where you're going. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Where you're going and what time you plan to be back. Like, give yep. a window. Even if you leave a note in your car, that's part of it, too. You know, yeah, it's a good point. So if you're a, you're a solo hiker and you know your family isn't nearby, you're maybe not going to call your mom seven states away. But yeah, leave a note in your car, going yeah. out for three hours on this trail. Uh, having a buddy, you know, I've got a friend that that uh, of course with my family we all we kind of we can see each other with fine friends. Um, I know Snapchat has a a feature with that you can turn on uh, Life three sixty. Having the ability yep. to track those that are closer to you, where you at least get a last known point that's in the vicinity, and and potentially a direction of travel, is huge. Yep. And uh, for those iPhone users, there's a there's a setting that a lot of folks don't turn on that it used to at least not be on by default, but it sends out a last ping before your battery dies. I always recommend turn that on. So the um, you know. Uh, find my phone feature, you can turn that on, but there's an additional setting that basically says when the battery's about to die, it gives one last ping. So if your battery does run out, you know pretty much exactly where that phone was when it died. Hmm. That's good to know. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. 
Yeah. If you have an Android, you're screwed. So sorry. You're yeah, dead. we just yeah. <laughs> we just started using Live 360 um, with my with my household, and um, I'm really happy with it. And I know my um, my Garmin will send out uh, pings to my wife as well. So because uh, she's usually home when I'm out in the woods. So and I always tell her where I'm going. Um, but you know, you never know. Well, she probably knows the general areas where you go too, because that's one thing when I yeah, go, I yeah. have to tell. I normally make sure with Lauren, like I could tell where I'm going, but it doesn't mean where she knows where I'm going. Where I'll be like, all right, if like you, if you hit up these three guys, they'll probably tell you exactly where I'm fishing because we fish the same spots. Right. Yeah, so it's at um, least yeah, you told them yeah, I'm going to the Never Sink, but the Never Sink's a really big river. And it's like if you hit up one of these three buddies of mine that we all fish together, they're going to know what parts of the Never Sink I'm probably at. Yeah, exactly. And like so, for me, you know, Robin has hiked pretty much everything that I would hike solo. So if I tell her I'm going to you know Nog Talk State Forest, like she'll she'll know the route that I'm going to take, you know, and things like that. But that that that's important, you know. It's it really is important information to make sure people have. So anyway, on that note, we have. We're well over an hour at this point, so I guess we should probably wrap it up. Shane, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with us. Um, please tell us where we can find you and Essie and Randall's and everything else. And your podcast, too, because it's all Yeah, so okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, so it's the Essie Rat Pack podcast. should be available on all major directories. Uh, I think we're up to 22 episodes. Uh maybe 14 or 15 listeners. So thanks mom and dad to those guys. <laughs> uh, SE knives. Uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Shane Adams 90. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. If you, if you talk to anybody on social media anywhere, it's going to be me. Um, and oftentimes doing a lot of the email responses too. Um, so uh, we all, we have a YouTube channel as well. Uh, which we add some content to from time to time. Uh, just from a inter- from a social media standpoint, we are like a lot of people shadow banned, and uh, I make a post to 112,000 followers, and it gets you know 18 likes. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're not currently in the place where we can be searched or found, uh, so it's se knives, all one word, all lowercase. Uh, and you have to type it all the way into the K-E-N-I-V-E-S before it will populate in the uh, in the search bar on Instagram. But Yeah, uh, I'll make sure I, I have all this information in the description for you guys as well so you'll be able to easily f- find and copy and get to get to get to awesome. Awesome. So. And thanks for, so if you have thanks. seven, if you have seventeen listeners, how'd you get seven more than us? <laughs> we bribed how does that work? We, we bribed. <laughs> Some broken one-inch knives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody gets a broken knife. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on, uh, Tom. Did you have anything you wanted to add about knives by Nuge before we? No. Vamos for no, the day? No, I'm just throwing shit up on the website and trying to make money. The usual. Lots of knives. So, lots, lots of knives, knives coming out. All right. Well, awesome. Well, thanks again, everyone. And uh, we will talk to y'all next week. Have a great I'll one. I'll take care. Happy Thank, Thanks, Shane. Take care. <laughs>